Welcome back, my friends, to the Council on Recovery podcast. I'm Howard Lester. Today, my guest, Dr. Claudia Black, one of the world's leading experts on family systems and addiction, reveals the startling connection between the psychological injuries we experience in childhood and the long-term trauma and addictive disorders that are destroying families everywhere. We'll look at how trauma and addiction literally changes the brain and why the unspoken effects of these conditions can reverberate for generations, uprooting family trees and perpetuating both shame and denial. But recovery from trauma and addiction is possible, and Claudia illuminates a simple yet powerful and effective process for both healing and creating a new narrative for living. We'll be right back. The Council on Recovery podcast explores the diseases of alcoholism, drug abuse, other addictions, and co-occurring mental health disorders by looking at prevention, education, treatment, and long-term recovery. We cover every point of view by talking with doctors, educators, researchers, therapists, judges, policymakers, law enforcement, rehab and mental health professionals, the media, and most importantly, people in recovery. Subscribe today at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us online at councilonrecovery.com. My guest today is Dr. Claudia Black, a senior fellow at Meadows Behavioral Health Care. Claudia is a PhD in social psychology who is internationally known and respected for her pioneering and contemporary work with family systems and addictive disorders. Claudia's cutting-edge work was instrumental in creating the solid foundation for the entire field of codependency. Since the 1970s, she's been a passionate leader in the field of addiction and has helped the world gain a greater understanding of the impact of family trauma and its connection with addiction. Claudia designs and presents training workshops and seminars to professional audiences in the field of family service, mental health, and addictive disorders. In fact, she was here today at the Council doing such a training. She has also authored over 15 books, most notably Intimate Treason and It Will Never Happen to Me. Claudia is also clinical architect for the Claudia Black Young Adult Center at the Meadows Treatment Center in Arizona. Claudia, I am so pleased to welcome you to the show today, and thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I had a great morning, by the way, with so many of the professionals from the Houston area. Yeah, there West. were a lot of a lot of compliments, and people were just amazed. And the long lines for the book signings yes, is yes. a good sign of that. So your new book, Unspoken Legacy, Addressing the Impact of Trauma and Addiction Within the Family, is, is really brilliant, and it, it resonated to my core. Uh, it reminded me of how grateful I am for this kind of work that you're doing, and my gratitude for the Meadows in particular for helping save my life over 31 years ago. Well, we're still out there, and uh, yeah, I know it's just, you know, I was saying today that I think it's a real honor to be able to be witness to the miracles of recovery, and I think that um, the work I do, the work we do at the Meadows, I think the work that we all do in the treatment uh, field, those of us who've been in it, um, uh, that's how we feel about it. It's an honor to be witness to the transformation that happens yeah. when people can make the commitment to their own recovery process. Right, and the life-saving aspect of that. And uh, could I tell you quickly about what my experience was? I would love to hear what okay. your experience so, was. Um, I grew up in a physically and emotionally abusive and dysfunctional home. In fact, I scored a five on the ACE scale that's the uh, adverse childhood experience scale that is or index that's in your book in mm -hmm, this book mm -hmm. 
And at 18, I started drinking and using drugs uh, to numb the pain, the shame, and the fear, and to deal with depression, of all things. So for the next 12 years, no therapist or psychologist I saw ever confronted me on addiction, and none of them ever drew any connection with childhood trauma, but I was always talking about it to them. So in late 1987, as my life was rapidly deteriorating from addiction, I reluctantly went to Family Week at the Meadows during my my older sister's rehab for a cocaine addiction. It was the first time that my sister, my parents, and I were ever confronted with the truth about our dysfunctional family, its legacy of trauma, and its connection to addiction. It was also the first time I ever admitted that I was an alcoholic and drug addict. So as a direct result of that experience at the Meadows in 1987, I got sober January 1st of 1988. And I did exactly what they told me to do when I was at the Meadows. I joined and actively worked a 12-step program. I continued my psychotherapy. And I got medical help for the clinical depression that I was diagnosed with. So I've been in sober since then, And my life has been greatly enriched by participating in my own recovery. And for that, I'm grateful for the kind of work you do, and I'm especially grateful uh, to the Meadows. Thank you for sharing that. You know, we so often say that when there's addiction in the family, look again, and that was certainly true in your family. Your sister goes in for a cocaine addiction, and you as a family member show up active in your own disease. But I also believe, which has been carried out in your family, when there's recovery in a family, the potential for recovery for a second family member and then a third family member. And uh, and that happened very quickly in your case. Yeah. In terms well. of as your sister started recovery, you were just right there, right behind her. And yet your story is, uh, you know, it really speaks to uh, what I talk about in Unspoken Legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of what I talked about is one generational repetition. Oh, yeah. And that uh, sometimes, what you were just speaking of, sometimes the actual initial disease that we recognize isn't the one that's repeated in that next. But without recovery process, all the manifestations of addiction can get, be repeated. Mm-hmm. You know, without recovery, the manifestation could be depression that you'll see show up again. Yes. It could be a process addiction such mm-hmm. as codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, when we say process addictions, we're talking about another word for that is behavioral addiction. It is uh, an addictive disorder um, or a behavior that we engage in in a highly compulsive way that mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a substance, just for the listeners who aren't familiar with that. And yeah, you know, when I wrote Unspoken Legacy, there was a lot of material today out there about trauma in yeah. general, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of material out there about addiction, and there's material about families of addiction, but nobody had put the trauma overlay to the family piece. And that was really my goal, that we needed to recognize that even myself included in a lot of my earlier work as I was working on adult children from alcoholic family systems, Mm -hmm. and that we would take a look at that ability to survive during the time in which you're growing up, Mm -hmm. and you can look so good to the outside world, but people don't see that inner despair. And ultimately, that gets acted out even more so in people's adult lives, in their own addiction, their own trauma, repeated marriages and relationships, mm-hmm. et cetera, or their depression and anxieties. And 
that's all about trauma. But we just didn't have the language of trauma at that time. Yeah. So I think that we were describing it, but we didn't have not just the language of trauma, but we didn't even have available to us today some of the methodologies of recovery and healing mm-hmm. that are helpful uh, that we've learned with trauma specifically. Yeah. A lot of those are things what I mean by um Oh, grounding techniques and mindfulness practices sure. that help sort of regulate that dysregulated nervous system. Yeah. So the science of the neuroscience is really helpful, the neuroscience of trauma. And then I think the uh, the modalities we can use in our recovery process have expanded for us, seeing it from a trauma framework. You've done great at answering the first three questions without me even having to answer them. <laughs> <laughs> what are those three questions? It's do beautiful. tell, Howard. Yeah, do tell, <laughs> do tell. No, I... Uh, yeah, I was I was asking about uh, trauma and, and how it shows up in families and why it seems so prevalent in families. Mm-hmm. Well, let me talk about that for a second um, because I can say even more uh, to that. And uh, one, much, much, most of my work is in families impacted by addiction. Yes. But certainly other families can experience traumatic stress. You don't have to have addiction in the family to yeah. be the only family with that. We have families where there is uh, other uh, – there's – mental illnesses Mm -hmm. um, that might be experiencing some traumatic stress. You have families where there's physical and sexual abuses without addiction. Well, obviously the traumatic stress Mm -hmm. is there. And, but extreme ways of relating within families can create traumatic stress for people. And what I mean by that is if a family is far too uh, rigid in their thinking and in their structure, and the flip side of that is far too permissive, is there is a high level of enmeshment. People are not allowed their own autonomy, their own identities mm-hmm. in the context of families. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side of that is families where there is severe disconnection. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that which is traumatic isn't necessarily real blatant, such as substance abuse or physical abuse. Is that the big T versus the, lo- the, the small T trauma that you're talking about? Yeah, it would be. Uh, yeah. Today I talked about uh, very blatant traumas that are oftentimes referred to as big T traumas, and the less blatant, more subtle, referred to as small T's. Mm-hmm. And the point that I had made was the language, sometimes it makes it easier to talk about trauma with mm-hmm. that analogy, but I don't want people to dismiss the small T traumas are as significant and because there's often many more of them, and they build on each other, as a big T trauma is. Mm. In families with small T traumas, predominantly what family members will experience is probably different forms of emotional abandonment. Mm-hmm. In, in, the, in any family, a big T trauma would be any time there's physical abuse, pushing, shoving, kicking, mm-hmm. pinching, hitting people, when there's that kind of physical violence. A big T trauma would be when there is sexual abuse, um, inappropriate touching, Mm -hmm. and then all the way up to intercourse in the family. Um, I also talk about a big T trauma is when there is uh, physical or sexual abuse in a family, and you are the witness of that. In fact, that it appears that people who are not the direct recipients and yet witness it, um, in many cases, are actually more traumatized because their sense of powerlessness is actually that much greater than being the direct recipient. But more pervasive are what we think of as these small T traumas that are usually various forms of Mm -hmm. emotional abandonment Mm -hmm. that comes with um, unrealistic expectations on the part of of parents, Mm. chronic unrealistic expectations, expecting a five-year-old to 
respond to something as if they were 12 or 13, uh-huh. expecting the 15-year-old to have the resources, mental resources of an adult. Sure. Um, so unrealistic expectations or highly critical parents, mm-hmm. that's a form of uh, emotional abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, any reason that there's sort of unpredictability, we don't know what's going to happen next in this family. So we can have all of that without those blatant forms. Wow. And as you were stating all those things, I was thinking about my big T family and uh, the fact that uh, my dad came back from the Second World War with uh, extreme PT, what we would now call PTSD. My older brother came back from Vietnam with that. Um, what was amazing about the Meadows, even back in 1987, was, and I remember the counselor, I think his name was Tough Love Doug. Doug Dodge. Doug Dodge. Bless Doug Dodge. He's now passed away, but a lot of people. What was his nickname? Tough Love Doug. Tough Love Doug. I know that's Doug Dodge, yeah. Yeah. And then Sandy Love. I didn't know Sandy. Okay, yeah. So whenever it was that Doug or Sandy took us, the family, through some of the stuff that they did and confronted us, to me it was like the missing pieces of a puzzle came into play, and I, I found out about the horrendous sexual abuse that my mother had suffered as a child. Uh, and uh, my father had also been horrifically abused. And as we were talking, as they were exposing all of that, I had all these aha moments, one right after another. No wonder that happened. No wonder dad said and did that. No wonder mom was never emotionally available, et cetera, et cetera. So What's amazing about it is even back in 1987, and they were doing the survivors. I think they had just started the survivors program out there at that time. Um, it was amazing that they were dealing with the thing that you have, have yes. so brilliantly pinpointed. And, and now I think what I've done is been able to put that into a language for people and yeah. therefore it's made more available you know, mm-hmm. in, in the book itself. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about there is just exactly the generational legacy and Mm. and the generational repetition and while they had such blatant big t traumas in their life from the war from their family Mm -hmm. that what got passed down to you was more chronic small t traumas yeah and then it's so easy for family members to say but i didn't have it that bad i didn't have sexual abuse i didn't have physical abuse you know my parent didn't have ptsd and what that does is then it dismisses what did happen for them and I've always believed that one person's loss is not to be negated because of another's. And while what you experienced may not have been as traumatic as what your parents experienced, that is not meant to negate what your experience and your chronic sense of loss is about. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to go back because you talked about it, the Meadows, uh, uh, the, the survivors. One of the things that we do at the Meadows that they've done since the 1980s is they have anybody who comes into their long-term program, their 45-day program, mm-hmm. will experience a five-day survivor's workshop. And that's where you deal with, in essence, trauma that mm-hmm. was experienced from birth up until 17 years of age. And mm-hmm. they still do that. They, they also do. do it on an outpatient basis. So anybody, any listener out there who wants to do some family of origin work could come and experience a five-day workshop that's in a wonderful retreat center now in Weckenberg. It's not inside the Meadows program as it once was in 87. Yeah, that's amazing. And what what was great about that was when I came back in 1987... Uh, John Bradshaw was just starting to do his thing on the families. And so that so resonated with me. And that was so pivotal, the understanding of the trauma. How are trauma and addiction 
connected and, and, and what really happens when they meet. Well, first of all, let me say God bless John Bradshaw, also yeah. a dear friend of mine. Yeah. And Beautiful man. So many people wouldn't be experiencing the recovery that they are experiencing or the depth and breadth of recovery without the work that John had, had done. And I realize I'm in his home city, and right now I'm sure he's smiling on us. Yeah, and right here in the Center for Recovering Families. Yes, which, literally. Which John was instrumental in, in starting. Okay, well, let me go back to your question, though. Sure. Didn't mean to ignore mm-hmm. it. And... Um, the relationship between trauma and uh, various addictions, I think that we use certain behaviors and substances oftentimes to anesthetize. Mm-hmm. As a young person said to me not too long ago, I began using when I was 11 years of age. I had a hole in my gut that was so big, and alcohol and drugs were the only thing that would fill it up. Yeah, I get that. And I think when we have so much trauma, uh, we need something to take that pain away. So we know it's a wonderful eraser, it's a wonderful medicator, it's a wonderful anesthetizer mm-hmm. of that pain. But I think that it's also about, it's either a way that we attempt to get rid of the pain in our life or it's what we do to attempt to garner pleasure in our life. Mm. And the greater the trauma in our life, the less apt we are to have pleasure and the more we are to have pain. So it's really a double-edged sword there. Mm-hmm. And we can use it, in fact, for both. You know, if we don't have other skills, you know, when I think about my early work and we talk about family roles, which I'm Mm -hmm. sure you do here at the Center for Recovering Families, when you just think about that, think about the child who's that lost child, who's afraid to make a decision, who's afraid to initiate, and maybe that child begins to drink and use because they're at that age where that's what their peers are doing and there's peer influence. But when they begin to drink and use, that drink or that smoke or toke does something for them that it doesn't have to do for somebody else. It gives me a false sense of courage. It gives me a false sense of confidence. And I would like to make a decision or two and I'd like to initiate and I'm tired of being invisible and I suddenly come out of that woodwork. And what I'm describing is something that becomes empowering. Hmm. And it may be falsely empowering, and it may be false courage, and it may be false hope. But I got to tell you, I'll take the false any day over none. Hmm. Over none. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then think about the child in this addictive home who is the caretaker. She's what I call the family uh, social worker or placator. Mm -hmm. And she's busy taking care of everybody's emotional needs. When she or he begins to drink or use, and again, we can say in that natural course of peer influence. Sure. They find themselves, me who's always so attentive to everybody else, for just this moment, if I have enough to drink or use tonight, I'm not quite so attentive to you. I'm a little bit more self-absorbed. And at Mm -hmm. first I feel guilty. But i got to tell you, there's a part of me that that also, just for a moment, I feel a sense of relief. Mm. For me, where life has been so serious, for just this moment, I was able to laugh and let down. Now, that doesn't make me addicted, but what it does do is it makes me thirsty. Yeah, and I I wanted to ask you about the the, the physiology, uh, the effect of addiction on the brain and certainly the adolescent uh, developing brain. In your book, you mentioned that substance addictions and process addictions and the way the brain sees them as being identical. And um, I wondered how trauma affects the brain, how addiction affects the brain, and how there's... Is there a crossover, or what what happens? Yeah, there very much is a crossover. One, I probably can't talk about this without also saying that when it comes to substance use disorders, there's a strong genetic component. That's not exactly the question you're asking, but I also want to say that some of us are wired from the start to be predisposed. That's an intergenerational 
predisposition you're yes. talking about. And then you add any psychological injury on yeah. top of that, mm-hmm. then those are the people, because it's only predisposition. Yes. So it's usually being genetically wired plus psychological injury. Yeah. That's the person who's probably more apt mm-hmm. to end up well, with mm-hmm. this addiction. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that you know, there are people who say, I'm going to make sure I'm not an alcoholic like my mother. I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure that I'm not a drug addict like my father was. And maybe they totally abstain and they never use. Yeah. But, and, and I see this all the time as I work with partners of sex addicts, I made sure I didn't marry my mother and my father who was the substance use disorder person. Yeah. But in, I ended up married to the gambler. I ended up married to the sex addict. And, and what happened is they married somebody probably very much like themselves, raised in a very similar type of family. Mm-hmm. But that person... Their drug of choice was an alcohol or a different kind of drug. And maybe they didn't even drink. Mm -hmm. But what happened is they would engage in a behavior that Mm -hmm. would do something for them. Oh, yeah. That it didn't have to do for somebody else. Mm. And in essence, the brain the brain lights up in the same areas with the behaviors, the repetitiveness of behaviors, as it would if you were taking a literal substance. Mm. So we see the same brain response uh, when it comes to gaming today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When it comes to, um, I think we're going to see it more and more with just screen use in general, by the way, internet use, screen Absolutely. use in general. Yeah. Um, but certainly when it comes to uh, uh, the more common kinds of process addiction, such as sex addiction and gambling addiction. The way trauma impacts the brain is is very similar to what happens with substances and certain kinds of behaviors. You know, with trauma, what happens is uh, we lose the ability, we move into a fight, flight, or freeze response. Sure. And what happens is that uh, center part of the brain called the limbic system, Mm -hmm. our emotional reasoning is really starts to lead the way. And we don't have the ability to think through, make healthy decisions. That part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex really goes offline. Mm -hmm. And we spend our whole life in a fight, flight, or freeze. And by the way, when I think about the issues of uh, addiction and trauma in the family, for many people, their addiction is their fight. Hmm. For many people, their addiction is their flight. I think that their depression is their freeze. Hmm. That's um, I think their anxiety could be anywhere between that flight and that freeze, but I think there's a direct analogy to the fight, flight, and freeze responses of trauma to what addiction was about for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, for some people, addiction is just an attempt to numb out and to go within. That's their flight. And for others, it's what gets them out there um, and makes them visible and gives them energy. And I think that's their fight. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is happening with both trauma Mm -hmm. and what ultimately happens with addiction is that uh, limbic system is the part that takes over and yeah. our, rules our life. Yeah, that's the... Re- we, we can go to our grave in a fight, flight, or freeze response. And many people do if they don't have recovery. Literally go to their graves, live, can live a whole life in a trauma response, in a trauma reaction. Yeah, I, I, I've i seen both my parents uh, pass away. Uh, in fact, the, the only moment of peace I've ever seen on my mother's face was when she took her very last breath yeah yeah and i said she was finally free of all of the things that dominated her life and all of the fear and the shame and everything else yeah. that that went on yeah. it was a beautiful thing to watch i mean not that to I know wanted. that she had a moment of peace yeah a moment yeah. of peace at the very end and it wasn't until she actually stopped breathing but uh that's a pretty amazing so uh, the the title of your book contains the word legacy which means anything handed down from the past, from a predecessor or an ancestor. Um, 
in my family, it seems like dysfunction, trauma, and and uh, addiction have go back to the, like the beginning of time. You mentioned about the genetic predisposition, but how does this become a legacy, and how is that legacy broken? Uh, the legacy is is the fact that when we have untreated trauma and or addiction in our family, mm-hmm. when there is not recovery, we are much more apt to live a script mm-hmm. than to have choice. Mm. And what I mean by that is we are much more apt to have to live our lives mm-hmm. uh, the next uh, sort of generation. The legacy is, whatever the legacy is, it is fueled by the unspoken fears. Mm. It's fueled by what gets handed down. Uh, what gets handed down as a consequence of the f- chronic state of fear. What gets handed down as a consequence of the chronic state of shame. Yeah. And what I mean by shame is the core beliefs that say we're not of value. So the legacy is that which gets handed down as a consequence of the parenting that's fueled by fear, fueled by shame, uh, behaviors as a consequence. Sure. Isolation, perfectionism, procrastinating behaviors, maybe rageful behaviors, maybe addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's that fuel and shame that fuel those unhealthy behaviors, and that's how we relate to this next generation. Mm. And the setup is that that is the legacy. Mm. That is, in essence, the script that will repeat itself. Mm. Uh, similarly, one generation after the other until there's a disruption to that. And that disruption, you know, for us, yeah. you know, today we call that disruption. That's what recovery is, is yeah. disrupting our yeah. fear-based thinking. It's mm-hmm. disrupting our shame-based thinking. Mm-hmm. It's learning new ways of being in the world that is validating to who we are and our preciousness. Yeah. And so, you know, how that gets broken, I was saying today when I spoke that there are factors in our life. There's protective factors that mm-hmm. can come into our being. And our protective factors are actually stronger than our risk factors. Mm-hmm. And protective factors, if I as a child being raised, and I was raised in a home that had mm-hmm. substance addiction. I was raised in a home that became very violent. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are few things that can happen in a family that can still give a child resiliency. And one of those is having another, a caring adult in your life mm-hmm. on a consistent basis. Sometimes that is going to be a series of people in the school setting. It doesn't mm-hmm. even have to be just one person in the school setting, mm-hmm. but it can be one teacher one year and another teacher the next year, but it's some kind of continuity. It could be somebody within your church or your faith-based community. It could be uh, parents of your friends, somebody in your growing up life interacted with you in a way and or said things to you uh, that gave you a sense of validation mm-hmm. and validation of of just that, your value, your importance. Would you mind me asking who that was in your life? Well, I was saying to the audience today, and there's usually more than one. I yeah. asked my audience if they could just at least identify one for themselves mm-hmm. of what that mm-hmm. was. And for me, there was a couple different people. Um, one was a boyfriend when I was 16 years of age. I was saying, he actually said to me, he said, Claudia, there's something really wrong with your dad. <laughs> 
and and I have to tell you how validating that was is because I was 16 years old and my mm-hmm. dad was crazy in his addiction and in his violence and nobody had ever said that because we lived in a community where so much of that went on. Oh my. And so to have somebody say there's something really wrong with your dad was extremely validating mm. and the message was there's something wrong with your dad and you were okay was what he was also saying. So someone else yes. got to see it yes. and validate for you that what you were seeing was really true. Yes, yes. But I also had a grandmother, um, and when my grandmother would come to see me, she would spend, for me it was special time, but what it really was was focus time. Mm. My dad was drunk and out of the home a lot, Mm. and when he was home it was violent. My mother was away working, Mm -hmm. and when my grandmother came, she was there with three little kids, Mm. and we laughed, and she played with us, and she brought some joy. And and then there's always... You know, the, the person who says, you know, you can make something out of your life. You don't have you don't have to continue to live in this town. You can make something out of your life. And I can. You know, what could that possibly be? I don't have to live here forever. You've yeah. got to be kidding. Yeah. Um, and I had somebody, I had a school teacher uh, who said that to me. And, uh, and it said it with a sense of strength. And I hung mm. on to that. Mm. And sometimes we just hang on to a little thread. But again, I want to talk about, uh, you know, in general, back to that question, is sometimes somebody, uh, it is oftentimes some singular person, it is having, being able to engage in something outside of that family home that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And again, for many people, that's sports. Mm-hmm. It could be some aspect of art. It could be, uh, it could be music, and maybe you're not engaging outside of the home, maybe it's in your own bedroom. Mm-hmm. I'm going to an arts and musical event, uh, mm-hmm. people in recovery, mm-hmm. and celebrating that tomorrow. And one of the things I find about people who engage in the arts and music as a young child, mm-hmm. if they're in a traumatic household, they have found an outlet that gives them a sense of emotional regulation, mm-hmm. that gives them a sense of inner calm amidst the chaos that's going on. They intuitively found a path that would be helpful in terms of their own recovery mm-hmm. at a very young age. And uh, can a 12-step program fill that same thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I think as this child growing up, we sort of navigate and uh, get attracted to mm-hmm. those things. That doesn't mean that we don't still end up in trouble. What it does mean is it means we're probably more likely mm-hmm. to ask for help sooner than maybe somebody else would. Yeah, I get that. I so, get I mean, t- truly today, I mean, obviously for me, the 12-step world is the most prevalent resource for people wanting recovery. Right. You're and right. even for people not wanting recovery. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, you just have to be willing to walk through the doors. Yeah. Uh, and and you don't even have to like it for a long time. Just keep being willing to show up. That's right. And yeah. and, and, it, and it is a program that is based upon unconditional love. Oh, yes. And yes. so that's big. That's, yes. that's, that's what resonates for me. Yes. And what I love about your book is that the whole second half of it deals with healing and recovery. I love that. Um, I was going to ask, you know, what does it involve? How can people get started? But you you um, talk about creating a new narrative. And I wondered how that plays into people getting involved and getting the help and getting the healing and recovery. My last chapter of the book is all about creating that new narrative. Yes. And if you don't read any other chapter in the book, read the last chapter of the yeah. book. Mm-hmm. And and it gets real practical. Mm-hmm. I lay out, I believe it's seven, I think the chapter before that lays out the six steps that preceded, and then the last chapter mm-hmm. um, is sort of culminating that. And it's a writing exercise. Mm-hmm. And I really take you through a process 
where you own what you're doing in the immediate moment mm-hmm. in terms of action versus I'm in recovery. Well, how does that manifest itself? How do you know if you're in recovery? What does that look like? Right. What are the steps you take to be in recovery at this given moment? Mm-hmm. I take you through a process as to uh, what do you see recovery offering you mm-hmm. so you can begin to visualize uh, and have that sense of hope and direction for yourself. Sure. And then I have you come back and validate what are the next steps you're going to take that might make that happen for you. Hmm. And I keep walking people through a process where I think that they're able to let go mm-hmm. uh, emotionally mm-hmm. of uh, what their past has been mm-hmm. and uh, put it in perspective, mm-hmm. identify the resources that allow them a healing process mm-hmm. and in walking through those literally seven stages, at the end, what you do is you're able to validate how you're living in this recovery process in this moment. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful exercise, and I hope everybody in the treatment world starts to do it with their patients, and I hope that you in individual recovery can do this for yourself. This is a self-help exercise. I'm, people, when I say self-help, it is an exercise you can do on your own. I mean, I'm going to follow you right through that. But it's also one I'm going to encourage professionals to walk through their person with. Mm-hmm. And that if you're just beginning that recovery process, you'll just you'll, that's where you begin. You begin with that very first step of, mm-hmm. of the and I'm not talking 12 steps right now, I'm talking about in this exercise, you begin right there. And it will, if you stay with it, it will carry you into that recovery process. Yeah. And again, which often means seeking out an addiction therapist, seeking Mm -hmm. out maybe a family therapist, Mm -hmm. and certainly, hopefully, seeking out support groups. And they don't have to be in the 12-step community. I'm going to have a bias towards that. But there are other kinds of self-help groups that may be able to be very helpful to people. Yeah, and I've noticed that that a lot of people talk about their lives being saved by their 12-step recovery work for the very reasons that you're talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I wanted to have a final question for you, and I, I was trying to think about how to phrase this, because, um, and this is what I came up with. So let's say we could go back 30 years in time. What would the Claudia Black of 1989 have predicted would be the state of mental health and addiction in the year 2019? In 1989, what would I have predicted would be the state of mental health, health? and addiction in mm-hmm. 20, 30 years hence? Where did you see it going? That is such a good question. In 89, Oh, and there would be so many changes after that for which my prediction would probably not be accurate. I think that in 89, I felt the energy of the adult child movement. Mm -hmm. I felt that the lay person was being empowered to have a voice, to speak to what has what had happened in their life sure and i felt i felt that that was extremely empowering and that there was no there was no more secrecy mm-hmm. about the abuses there was no more secrecy about the fear and the shame and that in that process that they were really taking charge of uh, moving forward in their life mm. you know i think what adult child recovery is about is it's, it's certainly 
we explore the past, mm-hmm. we let go of the dial regarding the past, but we connect it to what does that have to do with who I am today? Yeah. And that I need to be accountable for the fact that I would like to live my life today. But I think what I felt in 1989 was that we were teaching people the skills yeah. for them to live differently. Uh-huh. We were giving them the space to do their grief work, but giving them the skills to live their life differently. Yeah. And... I think in 89, I saw a lot of people in addictions going to uh, greater depth in their recovery in terms mm-hmm. of emotional recovery, what mm-hmm. Ernie Larson would call, I think, a second stage recovery. And I think that people had, you know, your physical recovery, and then they all had a lot of spiritual recovery, which is really important. Yeah. It's absolutely vital. Absolutely. But somewhere we weren't having the depth of emotional recovery that I think that uh, the codependency field, the ACA field, would have a lot to do with uh, facilitating. Wow. Now, I get a little concerned today, 30 years later. I think there's a lot more isolation in the world, and in yeah. part that could have a lot to do with our use of devices and screens. Yes. I think that we are losing some relational part of our world. Mm-hmm. We're becoming more isolated due to how much easier it is to text people than get on a phone and call them. Yeah. Um, how much easier it is to write an email than to send a really nice handwritten letter to somebody. Yeah, that's rare. Yeah, very rare. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I see a lot of depression today. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of anxiety today that has maybe more to do with our culture. We're back in... 30 years ago, it had more to do with, I think, our family systems. You know, I love being in this field. I, I was in it 30 years ago. I was in it 40 years ago. and I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that I could so-called retire today, and I don't plan to retire anybody, but I could so-called retire today, and I think that uh, this work would go on. Mm-hmm. What I do think is necessary is there will always need to be voices to carry it on. Absolutely. Um, and I didn't. I think I used to think 30 years ago that we were getting close to having done our work, I and other people, we were getting close to having done it. And that's it. Um, And then everybody would get it and um, we could move on to something else. Sure. And I no longer think that. I think that this will always need, we'll always need to have advocates. Um, We'll need to have, in essence, that's what an advocate is, they are a voice for. Mm -hmm. We need to have advocates for those in the recovery field. We need to have advocates for those who haven't got to recovery yet. Yes. We need to have advocates for those who are homeless and on the streets, for those who are disenfranchised for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. And and people are still incredibly disenfranchised, be it economically or due to race or mm-hmm. aspects of their culture. And so um, I will continue to be a voice for the things I, I am a voice for today mm-hmm. and uh, encourage other people to... Uh, not get complacent. You know, these issues have been around for a very long period of time. Faces possibly change on them, and they'll probably continue to be around. But I think what's so different today is recovering healing is very, very possible. Yeah. Resources are out there in this world, and they're all throughout Texas or wherever this podcast will go. That's a beautiful way to end. And your your the body of work that you've produced over the years and the changes that that work has helped make in people's lives is, I mean, beyond measure. And uh, I've been touched by your work over the years, and it, it, it means everything in the world to me to be able to sit here with you today and one-on-one just be able to share that. And, and knowing that you and I are sharing from a deeper level than just an interview sort of situation. Um, you're a beautiful person and, and a loving soul, and I want to thank you for being on the program. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun, Howard. Thank you. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks to Amber Grant for production assistance with this podcast and to Sean McClard for the original music. 
I'm Howard Lester, and I'm grateful to you for spending time with me today. See you next time.